0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from
1: scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
2: It's a great honor for me to uh, introduce our speakers tonight. Ambassador Thomas Pickering, my colleague for the past 13 years, who has served our nation with great, great distinction, demonstrating that diplomacy is a powerful tool for the maintenance of peace and stability. Ambassador Pickering has served as America's Undersecretary for State for Political Affairs, our U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, and our US ambassador, the Russian Federation, India, Israel, El Salvador, Nigeria, and Jordan. I didn't leave anything out, did I, Tom? In addition to English, he speaks French, Spanish, Swahili, Arabic, Hebrew, and Russian, which has enabled him to enhance mutual understanding at each one of his postings. His outstanding contributions in the field of diplomacy caused the President, with the advice and the consent of our Senate, to award him the personal rank of career ambassador, the highest rank in our foreign service and recognition given to very, very few. After he retired from government service, he served for five years as Senior Vice President for International Relations at the Boeing Company. In addition to his current work in advising U.S. companies which have activities abroad, he is active on a long, long list of not-profit organizations. I won't list them all, but he is chair of the board of the American Academy of Diplomacy, Washington Institute of Foreign Affairs, the Institute for the Study of Diplomacy at Georgetown University, and the list goes even further. He earned his bachelor degree with honors at Bowdoin College, a master's degree from the Fletcher School of Diplomacy at Tufts University, and was granted a Fulbright uh, to study at the University of Melbourne in Australia, and there he earned his second master's degree. He, He has been awarded honorary doctorate in law degrees from 15 universities, and it is my great pleasure to bring to the podium our ambassador to so many places who can talk about the issues that we confront today. Thank you for being with us, Tom.
1: Thank you all very much, and it's a special pleasure to be with you this evening. I'm particularly grateful for the opportunity to speak to the students from China. As Minister Li has said, you are ambassadors. uh, Because that relationship is so important to us, and in many ways, I think, will be the foundation for a long-term future together, which we must think about and work toward with care and I think with great intelligence. I'm delighted to join and thank Steve, particularly for opening this up and for uh, Yancy Molnar, uh, for Carla for her wonderful introduction and for my very old friend Skip Gineem's, uh words here Uh, allowing us to use this auditorium at the George Washington University, which is important, I think, uh, for both this colloquium and the success that I hope you will all derive from it. Tonight I wanna speak about two things, uh, but they're connected. And I wish I could tell you how American foreign policy is made, but as Winston Churchill once said about the Soviet Union, it's a sort of puzzle wrapped in a mystery, enfolded in an enigma these days. And so you, in your own observation, will have as good an idea as any of us who, in one way or another, used to participate in the process. Instead, I want to talk to you about some of the things that are changing foreign policy for my country, America, but will have relevance, I believe, to China. And then I want to talk about seven clusters Of major problems with which we have to deal, Uh, and certainly those will be things that in one way or another China will be thinking about. Uh, So your introduction to the making of American foreign policy will, I hope, begin with the substance uh, rather than necessarily the process, something that we as American diplomats used to take refuge in process when we didn't have a clear answer for the substance. I'll talk uh, as well from time to time about things that I think uh, the American government ought to do, which is not doing uh, perhaps to improve some of our foreign policy. Let me begin with this changing world. We live in an environment of very rapid change. Things are happening every day in ways all around the world that are constantly treated with and dealt with foreign ministries across the board. Uh, we have in many ways, now moved into an era of multipolarity. And that is, in every sense of the word, a serious challenge, and I'll speak with it uh, about it in, in a few minutes uh, as one of the subject areas that I'm concerned about, how we treat multipolarity. If uh, I- anything is true these days, Economics has moved ahead as a key foreign policy challenge and issue, perhaps more than it ever has before. And it's close interrelationship with politics and with security, uh, give it a special place. But even more, I think foreign policy is in many ways now affected by science and technology. And uh, individuals serving as diplomats need to have a good understanding of science and technology because so many of the questions we deal with in one way or another uh, cover uh, the questions of uh, how and in what way uh, science and technology make a difference. Key among those is the fact that the information age provides new challenges. Flows of information, both good, bad, and true and untrue, that we have to deal with. That the world knows almost before diplomats do what is the next move on the chessboard of international political life and how and in what way it's going to shape both the day ahead and the weeks and months to follow. We have too much, I think, in this day and age of a short-term perspective In large measure generated by the flow of information coming in in ways that have been unpredictable from the past and likely to be continued to saturate the environment with which we have to deal. And sorting out that information, separating the urgent from the unurgent. The politically important from the less important. The economically demanding is a task that will in many ways continue to face diplomats all around the world in their work to strive for peace, the resolution of issues, and for a contribution to their own state's interests. These are all important factors. I come uh, to another. Uh, Military solutions to diplomatic problems has recently been tried in several instances and, in my view, found seriously wanting. And indeed, I think it is important for us all to think that military solutions have great limitations on what they can produce in terms of economic and political settlement. Uh, And they are, in that sense, uh, in my view, fraught with problems uh, to be dealt with only, I think, in the final instances of national defense and relegated to a, to a, to a shelf uh, where, in one way or another, uh, it may be that military influence can help I- influence diplomatic outcomes, but the diplomatic process has to be engaged uh, before, in fact, we fall back on military levers. And a final point, I think, uh, that's interesting to look at. Uh, Problems this day and age no longer appear in narrow stovepipes, but are often in many ways mixed together in a fashion which strategically affects outcomes as we look at them. Uh, One simple example about which I'll talk uh, in a few minutes is the close interrelationship between policies dealing with the environment, with climate change as a special and important case of environmental concerns and with energy, uh, clearly uh, one of the most significant and important activities states undertake uh, for their own future and prosperity. Uh, These three interrelated questions are matched in a number of problem areas. And I will talk about baskets of problems or collections of problems rather than necessarily one or two major issues facing the United States. This is important because we need to think strategically about them, about their interrelationships, about the fact that if you push in one direction, often things balloon in another direction and you need to be aware of that as you treat with them. And finally, for diplomats in a more narrow sense, solving problems that are complex and interlinked means that at times, uh, the question of unintended consequences is not yet well foreseen. And at other times, you may be able to draw on linkages to bring about solutions, making problems either smaller or sometimes larger uh, to bring to play uh, questions of benefits for both sides. To achieve the kind of win-win solutions that diplomacy is dedicated to finding. And let me now turn uh, to my seven problem sets that now lie before us uh, and in many ways have been there for some time. Uh, Giving this talk, I'm always at this point uh, somewhat disturbed by the challenge of which I should give priority to. And beginning, I will, because we are Americans and Chinese here together, with a set of problems that I call rivals and partners. And by this, I mean uh, a number of continental countries and organizations that will play in this new multipolar environment the most significant roles. So China is there, and Russia is there. India is coming up and will be there, I believe. The European Union, if it survives, the present period of challenge will also be an important player. 550 million people, while it doesn't reflect in a serious way against China's 1.3 billion, nevertheless does play a significant role, and one might wish to add Japan and Brazil, and if you have others, think about it. But countries, in many ways, whose economic strength, political and security strength puts them in the first line of world organization and in the first line of treating with world powers. There is no easy, sovereign answer to the question of how can these countries become partners and still at one and the same time uh, occupy a concern on the part of fellow states as being rivals. And here I think there are several things that we ought to keep in mind. One is that we need to treat with each other, we need to deal with each other at the highest levels of our governments. Secondly, and perhaps even more important, we need to deal with each other in the effort to find those few important win-win questions which have existential significance for us both. In the Cold War with the Soviet Union, it was avoiding mutual nuclear annihilation. With China, over a period of time, I have come to believe that in the still misunderstood in this country important question of climate change, we have a remarkable possibility of working closer together to avoid what is clearly an impending catastrophe of deep weather changes and sea level rises. Uh, Maybe not existential, but close to it. And perhaps closely associated with that is managing the cyber world. The cyber world has a capacity, if we do not think about it well, uh, and manage it carefully, uh, to be able to reap a level of destruction probably not nearly as great as nuclear, but significant if we think about it. Certainly, shutting down the power systems of countries would have an enormous and catastrophic outcome. And we could, in some ways, recognize uh, that there is a sense of a deterrent capacity in cyber Think about why don't we in fact stabilize cyber and work together on it in the same ways that we are trying to work on nuclear weapons. Unfortunately, in the American period and in the Russian period now, we seem to be shredding more of the treaties that provided the stability through which we survived the Cold War than unfortunately we are creating. But let's look for a turnaround. The great value of cooperation on win-win is that it makes the differences on smaller questions less significant if we are both committed uh, to surviving in win-win. And it gives us a framework to work on those smaller, divisive, sometimes not so easily resolved questions. The second basket of issues, if I could phrase it that way, comes close to this one in a different sense. It is weapons of mass destruction and what we should be doing about that. Non-proliferation, particularly with respect uh, to North Korea and Iran and others, the question of arms control, uh, the notion of uh, nuclear stability that I talked about a moment ago, Uh, These are all challenges, and they involve nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons, and maybe after a period of time, cyber, if we think about it, Uh, but they can be dealt with. They are part of the sum and substance of international diplomatic negotiations. And there is no reason why we should return to the middle of the Cold War when between us and the Soviet Union, we produced 70,000 nuclear weapons, and we have now reduced those to numbers collectively below 12,000, and we should go further, and the present hiccup in, in that progress needs to be overcome. A third question that I think is also very important, and this one is again a geographic question, is what do we do about the turmoil in the Middle East? Uh, Certainly, if we'd been speaking five years ago or 10, we'd be talking only about the three I-word problems, Iran, Iraq, and Israel and its neighbors. Now this has spread. Something called the Arab Spring was anything but a spring. It must be now classified certainly as the Arab tragedy. The disintegration of Syria, the huge loss of life, and the millions and millions of Syrian refugees is just one example. We can go to Yemen and to Libya also uh, to find disastrous circumstances and perhaps even in Algeria, which went through an internal war we have somehow forgotten about between the forces uh, of Islamic uh, 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 radicalism on the one hand uh, and uh, Algerian nationalism on the other. There are no easy answers to these particular problems. We've been struggling with them. They cannot be resolved by outside powers, but I I believe also they cannot be resolved without the outside powers who now participate in the numerous civil wars and indeed conflicts that are taking place in that part of the world. I wish I could tell you because I spent Eight years of my career working on the questions of peace in the Middle East between Israel and its neighbors. And I wish I could tell you, I thought we were approaching a, cer- a set of circumstances where that would be worked out. Unfortunately, I believe we are distancing ourselves from the central elements of a fair and honest agreement with respect to both the Palestinians and the Israelis, a two-state solution with all that that portends. We don't have the time tonight to go into the details, uh, but I will tell you that I am convinced there is no one-state solution. There are two one-state solutions, each one equally unacceptable to the other side. And so we are forced, once again, to think about the two-state solution. Leaving the Middle East as we go along, uh, let me then turn to the world economy. Are we approaching a bubble? Should we be concerned about that? I wonder. One can see a long period of economic prosperity dampened obviously by the setbacks of 2008 and 2009. Uh, One only has to worry that we had an opportunity, both domestically, each of us, uh, and internationally, uh, to find ways to seek to fend off what are clearly hugely potentially difficult economic circumstances. I believe that we gave ourselves, perhaps China and the United States, a B or a B plus. But in international cooperation, I think we are struggling with a D plus or a C minus in terms of being able to find ways further to institutionalize uh, the question of do banks operate in ways that stay uh, within the bounds of the rule of law, of justice, of fairness, and of equity. uh, And are we in our own ways managing our national economies in a fashion that will help. Certainly, trade issues are intimately linked in this question. And Minister Lee mentioned them. And I agree with almost everything he's had to say. And I'm happy to say I do. And I think that in some ways, if we could sit together and speak about these questions in ways that I hope could amplify the degree of overlap of our common concerns. While we each worked out answers to those, we would be a great deal better off than entering a trade war where mutual efforts uh, further to antagonize the other side seemingly are an answer to the problem. I think not, and I hope that we will, uh, because The damage we are doing to our economies and the world economies is something clearly that will show up and be important. Looking further, there is a group of issues that I think has been with us for a long time, a group of issues that you in China intimately know. And I would call this group, this collection of issues, uh, by the short title of Poverty, Growth and Development. And I would raise the questions of food, health and water as part of the answers and I would say some of the effects are clear and important. They are not principally always responsible uh, for these effects or impacts, but they have a relationship. Certainly we could start with failed and failing states. We could start with migration. Uh, We could continue. Uh, with issues such as international criminal and narcotics-based activities. We could look at the impacts and effects on trade. Uh, We could, uh, in many ways, uh, see behind these questions a number of the difficult problems we have to face, made worse by, in effect, uh, the waves of new epidemics that one way or another come at us Uh, from the natural environment with which we must contend uh, and hopefully with which we will contend, but where perhaps in some places with Ebola in the Congo, I think at the moment, we are falling short of being able uh, to deal with those. These are important and interesting questions. They are questions we've all struggled with over a period of time. They are questions in which we have devoted an enormous amount of international funding, international investment, and effort further to develop trade solutions. Uh, While we are not perfect, uh, some countries have, and in many ways, uh, particularly in Asia, risen above, but we look at Africa, and in some places in Latin America, still far behind in dealing with this set of issues. And it's important Uh, And in many ways, uh, terrorism has some economic fundament in these sets of problems, uh, an issue and indeed a problem uh, with which we are going to have to contend for some time. And then I would end, uh, I think, uh, now with uh, one other set of problems. In our country, uh, our international activities are best defined Uh, by a law passed in the late 1940s uh, in which we set up a defense department and an air force and created an intelligence community, uh, among other things, and set up a National Security Council. Uh, These have served us well, but far from perfectly. And the new changes that I've talked about, as well as the host of issues that I've outlined for you that we face are, in my view, still things uh, that we have further and indeed important need uh, to redesign and restructure ourselves to face. There are, I think, counterparts of this uh, which we both share an interest in, U.S. and China. And these have with the international institutions, many coming at the end of the Second World War, and some perfected in a long-distance effort since then, Uh, And these issues will, in those particular sets of circumstances, be a basis for how and in what way we can agree uh, for the necessary questions that have to be dealt with. Having spent time at the United Nations, I am fully aware of the importance to all countries of the Security Council. Most get to serve only once in a lifetime on that body. Uh, China and the United States, with three others enjoy permanent membership. Uh, We hold the veto, which means that we should protect our national interests. We should be careful, however, not to overuse it. uh, Because overused, the veto has brought about uh, a, a period of, I think, stasis in the work of the Security Council, and it would be wise for us more carefully to examine that. A final point is that With respect to something like the United Nations, it is significant that rarely do we think about a whole host of organizations, some of them founded in the 19th century, which do everything to make our world function effectively, from honoring the postage stamps of foreign countries in your own nation, uh, to the questions of looking at world climate Uh, to the issues of regulating civil aviation uh, and maritime commerce, uh, to international development programs and efforts. These are the so-called specialized agencies of the United Nations. They are, in many ways, the unsung, unheralded machinery that makes the world turn effectively. And they are remarkable examples of how countries can come together, on complicated problems, some highly technical, to make things function in a way that we almost never hear about failure. And for us, that is a boon. Uh, Some of this can be simplified. I think some of it can be straightened up. And some of the thought of us, all of us, needs to be given to where we need to fill in some of the holes and gaps that appear in this machinery. These sets of problems are not unique. They are not alone. The interrelationships, I hope for you, are clearer now as we have looked at them in groups than they may have been before. The opportunity for all of us to think about how to deal with these, these are not uniquely the privilege of either the United States or China to have to deal with, but they are things that we can address in common and together. So I welcome you here. I hope you will find the colloquium interesting. I look forward to your questions. And I thank you for your kind attention and the invitation to talk to you tonight. I'm going to moderate. And just, uh, we ask that you are calling, please, say so your name and if you're one of the participants, uh, what you study, what's Thank
0: you. Um, Thank you very much for this wonderful speech. Um, My name is Ming Yi Xu. Um, I just graduated from the uh, Master of International Affairs program uh, from Columbia University. Um, So on the first day of our colloquial um, uh, of this program um, and about U.S. foreign policy, it was mentioned that um, the major goal of U.S. foreign policy used to be avoiding another world, world war and another Great uh, Depression. So, But for today, I just don't see the clear goals of the U.S. foreign policy, and I don't know what the current administration really wants to achieve. So my question is, Do you think that the foreign policy goals of the current administration have been fundamentally changed compared to the last administration, and what would be the top US foreign policy goals for this administration? Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's an interesting and demanding question, and I think matches my evasive attitude toward telling you how foreign policy is made in this administration. But let me take a look. I think that um, a number of years ago an American president, Harry Truman, was asked, what are America's vital interests? And he said, survival and prosperity. Uh, And certainly, avoiding wars uh, and doing better economically fit those particular prescriptions. And I don't think they change radically between administrations. Administrations often produce a national security document, and this one has it. Uh, And those documents are interesting because they attempt to outline goals for American foreign and security policy. What they don't give you is priorities. And what they don't give you is what we want but cannot pay for, uh, which is sort of what priorities are. And so you read those with, I think, both an interest but some skepticism about whether, in fact, when it comes to difficult choices, they will be high enough on the list. I can also tell you that if you look at the wars we have been engaged in, Uh, and you define those uh, as not relevant to American survival uh, but really high priority secondary interests of the United States, I think you would be correct in defining them that way. Uh, And I think I would be correct in saying those were not wars fought in defense of the United States so much as a projection of American power for one or another uh, particular objectives that didn't quite meet the vital interest level. Uh, I speak to you frankly about that on an entirely personal basis because I don't represent the present administration and they would speak to you in different terms and I'm sure defend themselves very well.
0: Uh, thank you, Ambassador, for your wonderful. Speech.